Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Today on the show, we have Alan Scott, who is the producer and writer of the infamous popular Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Alan has been writing screenplays for TV and films for around about five decades. He's a writer with a vast amount of experience, and he's been there, done that in the film and TV industry. So just before we get started with this interview, make sure you head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can watch the video interview to this particular podcast and all of our other disruptive interviews. But remember this, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure and privilege to have with you Alan Scott today. Now, um, The Queen's Gambit is probably my joint favorite series um, of the last two years. Um, Maybe I'll say what the other one was at the end, but (laughs) it's a fantastic series. It's obviously gone very viral. Let us know in the comments if you've watched The Queen's Gambit. If you haven't, you absolutely need to. And the man here, Mr. Alan Scott. Hello, Alan. Hello there. He is singularly, if that's a word, uh, we need to thank him uh, for that happening. Um, because I believe, was it back in 1980 that you bought the rights? I think, it was, 80, 80, I think it was a little later, 85, 86, something like that. Yeah. Right. I, I only acquired an option on the rights. And with the option, I then went and wrote a screenplay and started talking to people. And I renewed the option two or three years in a row. And then one day the estate said, um, Mr. Tevis has died and we're not going to renew your option again. So you either have to pay the purchase price, which was a huge amount of money, or or just disappear. And I thought, what can I? And I had a really good year that year. So I had enough to send several hundred thousand dollars by Western Union to my surprised agent in California. Acquired <laughs> the rights, there we are. Now, I'm going to have to ask the question in a moment, Alan, what took you so long? Um, but before we, before we go there, I would just like to, A, thank you, because I thought it was a brilliant series. And how does it feel to, you know, have written, produced uh, all the things you've been involved with the show, um, probably the most popular Netflix series? How does that feel? Are you surprised? I think, yes. I think anybody who was involved with the show was surprised. Um, and you miss out, of course, the most important contributor to this. The two most important contributors are Walter Tevis, who wrote the novel on which it's based, and Scott Frank, who directed it and wrote most of the episodes. And and it's just a terrific director. And it was entirely Scott who hired a girl called Anya Taylor-Joy. And, uh, and I think, I don't remember what my partner, Bill, my co-producing partner, thought of it. I was a bit suspicious 
And I remained suspicious until on the set, watching her act, and she was just, you just knew right away, this was going to be a major, major player. Mm. And is this the most successful project you've been involved in, would you say? It depends how you measure success. My, but, you know, uh, the, very wise. <laughs> but it, well, it's true, but it, yes, by numbers, yes. I was trying to work out the other day, just for the fun of it, because Netflix announced somewhere that we'd been seen by, I think, 63 million people, something like that. Wow. Well, okay. Well, if Shakespeare opened a play at the Globe in 1520, say, and there were 500 people in the audience, it would have had to have run every weekday night until about now, <laughs> as many people. <laughs> Um, so, is The Queen's Gambit really about chess? No, it's about the girl. And I think that's, I mean, it is about chess, of course, because of that. But, but the thing, when I first read the book, it was so obvious right away that this was a, a very moving story about a child. It was, it was almost, a, I mean, I compare it to a Victorian novel, uh, kind of Dickensian. I mean, it was, this is a child who lost her mother who was picked up by a completely uncaring orphanage, was put on drugs, which was the regime that they were on at that time in her life, was ignored. And actually, there's a scene cut from the from the uh, series, which I'm slightly sad about, uh, in the, her punishment for playing with Mr. Scheibel in the basement when she's discovered. Oh, no, it's when she's discovered stealing the, uh, the, the uh, drugs. Uh, but the head says, no more in the basement, no more chess. And, you know, that's such a blow to an eight-year-old who's just discovered something that she's good at. Can you imagine that? I mean, I think we all of us have something that we discover quite young that we're good at. Whatever it may be, it can be juggling. I mean, it doesn't matter. And we take a kind of wonderful pleasure in that skill. And look at that girl beating the janitor teaches her the game, beating the first school she goes to play at, and then beating, you know, 12 people at the same time. I mean, it's a wonderful story of, of uh, empowerment. Mm. So it's really about her. Chess is the instrument by which she does it. Okay. Mm. I mean, I completely agree. I did notice quite a lot of people saying, oh, they're not interested in chess, and that's why they didn't maybe initially watch it. So... Did you feel that that lead angle of chess might have been a gamble to its success, or were you just sold in? Well, but the book, all the screenplays that I ever wrote, and certainly the series, uh, all deal very carefully with the chess games. Curiously enough, we uh, the, the main note that Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion for 10 years, gave us at one uh, when he, he came into town and he read the entire seven episodes and then we met the next day and he said the main thing you mustn't do is use the words check or checkmate and we said but how are the audience going to know that it's going badly or it's going well he said it doesn't matter but at that level of chess you never need to say check to somebody you never yeah. need to yeah. say checkmate to somebody uh and we thought oh, my God, we have to rethink that in every single game. We have to indicate to the audience somehow that she's in trouble or she's on top of it and she's doing really well. 
And we can't do it by saying check or check. <laughs> anyway, um, but each chess, we knew that we had to write for, I always have known, you have to write for an audience that didn't play chess. Mm. Apart from anything else, I think it would be boring. Even for chess players, I think it would be boring. Mm. Um, so if you look through the series, pretty much every chess game has its own mini drama. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to spoil people's fun, but at the end, there's a, there's a terrific mini drama. There's a guy whom she beats, and he he it's very emotionally powerful because he says to her, "You are the greatest chess player I've ever met," which kind of hits you in the face. You think, "Oh my God, she's the great!" And then she has to play the world champion, and so it's actually a and and people call her while she, while the game is adjourned overnight. They call her, and we didn't expect that, and they help her. And it's just – so what I'm really saying is that there are emotional and dramatic highlights through the game, and those are what carries the chess. Mm. And, and how was it re received by the, the chess masters and the critics of chess? Was it still received well? I tell you, it was – I mean, I, you know, I'm sure they can find fault with it, but we had, besides Gary Kasparov, we had two young German world chess grandmasters, and we had a great American guy called Bruce Pandolfini, who basically advises movies and TV about chess. He was the advisor to a very good movie about chess called Searching for Bobby Fischer. And mm. he brought him every single game and every move of every game in the, in the series has been carefully worked out. And it's not a cheat. It's all, they're all basically from famous games. Sure. sure. So, so I don't know what, what, what could they say? They could say the games go too quickly. Well, that's true. Mm. I mean, in, in, in Queen's Gambit, they go too quickly. <laughs> they're not going to take three hours over a game. Yeah. Especially if got five games to go. <laughs> five games in six countries. One of the, one of the most phenomenal things for me, I've, I've made movies all over the world, but but this movie, if you look at it, this series, we go from Kentucky to uh, Cincinnati, then to Mexico, then to Las Vegas, then to Moscow, to uh, two or three other places, all of which we found in the city of Berlin. <laughs> It was extraordinary. I mean, Berlin was, and the crew was amazing. They they were just the best crew I've ever worked with. We 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 went there on the uh, and on the first day we had a big meeting for so sixty people or so, and Bill Horberg and I were the only two people in the room who spoke no German, and the entire meeting was conducted in English. Love it. I don't. So, know, we couldn't return that compliment. I can tell you. <laughs> Um, anyone who's watching live, if you have any questions, I'm probably going to take some questions at the end. Um, Alan said that was fine earlier. So by all means, put the questions in. I can see them coming up, whether you're on LinkedIn or Facebook. So I have to go back to 1985, Alan. You've bought the rights or an option on the rights. Yeah. But what took you so long? And take us through that whole journey of finally getting it done. I, can't, I, mean, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to blame other people. <laughs> But the truth is, I worked with eight or nine different directors, all of them major directors, because I knew 
I had to overcome a prejudice against the idea of a chess movie. So I had to start with somebody who was somebody in the studio wanted to work with. And I won't name them all, but I mean, I started with Bernardo Bertolucci, who at that time was the biggest overseas director there was. And Bernardo was wonderful. We would lunch every week and I would say, come on, let's do work on the script. And he was like, no, no, no need to do work on the script. I shooted the script. But I couldn't persuade anybody to let him shoot the script. The truthful answer is over 25 years, 30 years, I had nine at-bats in studios. And in every single case, they eventually didn't make the movie because the story was about a chess girl who played chess. Mm. And you can't overcome prejudice like that. It just, you know, you just have to give into it. The nearest I got was when Heath Ledger said he'd like to do it. And I then had to audition him because I had no idea Heath ever directed. And he did. He sat down and he showed me every short he'd ever made, every commercial he'd shot, some, some music videos he'd made. And there was clearly a guy who could stand there and direct a movie. There was no problem. And I must say, I became very fond of him, a really, really good guy. He was just finishing up on playing the Joker in Batman. But he was a, he's a, he was a decent, kind man and, and very modest. He was one of those big stars who, in a restaurant, always had his back to the room so that he didn't interrupt your dinner or whatever it was. And, uh, and I thought we had a go with Heath. And I, we might have done. I mean, we, we were nearly there. We nearly had financed together. And he had already cast it, more or less, by calling his pals. Um, and... Uh, and then he died, so we didn't get any. And then I have to say, his death then left me for at least two years, maybe even three years. I just didn't really want to touch it again. Not, not, not in sort of sentimental tribute to his memory. It was just the fun had gone out of it. So it took me a while, and then by the grace of God, I ended up meeting Scott Frank, and Scott said, "Why don't we expand the story and and take it to Netflix?" And we worked on it. Uh, a great deal, um, and then he wrote all the episodes of the teleplays, and uh, and by then I think we we completely trusted each other. And, and what was fascinating to me is that every scene that you see in the series, I at some point assessed, written, decided whether to use it or not to use it. And everything that I'd spent all those thirty years doing, I know was helpful even if it was only a remark to Scott saying, you know, I think that should be gentler. Or I, I give you an example. In the movie, when somebody important to her dies and she discovers how much she was loved by him, I had it happen at that moment where she discovered it. Scott did something much cleverer than that. Oh, that bit was genius. That was, it was brilliant. I remember it. So I won't ruin it for people, but it was brilliant. And, and that's why I'm trying not to. But, but his version of it, was not to have her break down in tears at that point, but later, suddenly it hits her, or it mm. gradually grew up in it. And it's so moving now. I mean, anyway, those kind of interactions with us really helped a lot. I think. Mm. So I'm going to come back a bit later to the Netflix part, but just to quickly ask, because you said it, um, why did you pitch it to Netflix when, of course, there are many... Um, outlets that you could go to nowadays? I honestly can't tell you that. I mean, it was just 
<laughs> and then Netflix wanted to work with Scott. Oh, they had worked with him. That's why. He'd done a, a very good series, um, a, a, a cowboy set in the West about women um, with with that girl from uh, from uh, Downton, Downton Abbey, Michelle. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's not a star embracer, are you? <laughs> Michelle Dockery. Ah, <laughs> oh, you just tested me there, didn't you? You knew all along. <laughs> I didn't. No, it came to me. I was, it was looking at your worried face at me. <laughs> um, right. Uh, but he he just done a series for them, and it was a big success. And it was extremely, in fact, one of the reasons I got in touch with him too. Mm. Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts for any training that we might run, not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a, a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. dot ly forward slash rob supporter with a capital r i believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger there's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good and for just a few dollars a month you can get the best content on business on entrepreneurship on starting up on scaling up on sales on marketing on the mindset of being an entrepreneur so go to bit.ly forward slash rob supporter with a capital r right now Um, but how does working on the Queen's Gambit compare to your other projects? I know you worked on Shallow Grave, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, uh, other projects. How does this one compare? Priscilla, Queen of the Desert was more camp. <laughs> Much more. <laughs> when we were in rehearsal in Melbourne 12, 13 years ago now, it's, I can't believe it's been running for that long length of time. Sorry, you want to talk to me about Queen's Gambit? So I you can ask every Whatever you like, this is your show, so just chat away. <laughs> it was only to tell you that we were in early rehearsals 
and getting to know people. And there were 21 men in the cast. And I said to the director, I said, out of 21 men, I said, I can only count three guys who are straight. And he said, no, he said, it's two and a half. <laughs> I said, who's the half? And he said, well, so-and-so. And I said, and why is that a half? He said, well, he thinks he's straight, but he's going to find out within the next six weeks that he's not. <laughs> and so it proved. And I was one. I really love doing Priscilla because it's so not my scene. I, I I had to go talk to Stephen Elliott and and who collaborated with me eventually on this on the stage musical because I said it's a world I don't know. I've never been to a gay club. I've never you know I know nothing about it. And it was it was kind of wonderfully liberating. And eventually, I guess the big message of the show was quite liberating too. It was it was don't be prejudiced. Mm. That's the same message as the Queen's Gambit, and that's very different from Shallow Grave, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't take more two more contrasting concepts. That's true. Yeah, I loved Shallow Grave. That was an amazing movie, and uh, and then they very sweetly, because of my involvement with Shallow Grave, uh, Danny and the and Andrew McDonald and and the writer, the three of them came to me and said, "Now the next project I should be involved with." But I could produce, and it was called Train Spotting, and it was about drug addiction in Edinburgh. And I sort of patted them on the shoulders and said, "You guys are launched now. You don't need me." And I got <laughs> out of it altogether. What a dumb move that was! <laughs> so I now say yes to almost everything. Well, I am. Um, I interviewed Nolan Bushnell, and Nolan Bushnell was offered a huge slice of apple for fifty thousand dollars. So not as stupid as that one, maybe. <laughs> but I got a glimpse into into real wealth recently. I was asked if I would do the life story of Andrew Carnegie, mm. and actually, and for other reasons, I'm not doing it. But but it was a fascinating story. When when in his last sort of eight years, he was by far the richest man in the world. But he was, in modern terms, he was worth over seven hundred billion dollars. Wow. Which is bigger than anybody I know of at the minute. And mm. genuinely believed that with his money, he could find a way to use that money to prevent the First World War happening. Mm. And uh, he never did. I mean, he couldn't. Anyway, I just love the... Uh, I, Andrew Carnegie's always fascinated me as a fellow Scot. And, you know, he created these libraries around the world. And one forgets that they're called Carnegie Libraries. They're just the library. And uh, once, when I was running a whiskey company and we sponsored a, a writing prize, and at the big banquet to give the award, the woman who won the prize got up and said, I want to thank Andrew Carnegie, because that's where she learned to read, was in the libraries that he created. I love wow. that idea. Mm. So... Um, yep. You were taking us on the journey from 1985 to getting the and, Queen's Gambit. And being rejected by more or less every studio I approached, despite giving them glamorous and important. Uh, I never landed Steven Spielberg, but I landed a few in that area. And, and still I couldn't get them. Made. And some wonderfully eccentric. The only other director I, I had such fun with was Frank Oz. Now, you'd think that the guy who created Kermit the Frog might not be the best director for the Queen's Gambit, but he was really wonderful about it. And he was he, anyway. 
we didn't do it. So there, I guess he wasn't the best director for it. But uh, I was so happy to, to come across Scott because the other reason for that is that Scott is primarily a writer or was primarily a writer. I imagine now he's you know, the Hollywood director in Hollywood. But, uh, but it's wonderful working with a writer because they know how the processes are and they know how to approach the hurdles in the right way, both as mm. a writer and a director. I never wanted to be a director in all my years. And the reason I never wanted to be was made clear to me by Nick Rowe. I was visiting with Nick, who was one of my best friends, very eminent director uh, in the 70s, 80s, 60s. Um, I was visiting him when he made The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I said, how's it going? And he said, well, the Rip Torn wouldn't come out of his caravan yesterday and read a line. It involved opening the refrigerator and saying a line of dialogue. And he wouldn't come out. And I sent one person after the other. I talked to him. No, he wasn't going to say that line of dialogue. And I thought, that's why I don't want to be a director. <laughs> and I said, what did you do in the end? He said, in the end, he said, it was very simple. I went on to the next sequence or the next scene. And when Rip came out and said he thought he'd figured a way to do it, I said, no, that scene's been cut. That's how you discipline an actor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be in that business of disciplining actors. And I worked with Oliver Reed, so there you go. Mm. Did you doubt along the way that it would ever happen? No. Well, I knew it would happen whether it was with me or without me. It's too good a story. I mean, you don't come across stories that powerful, that which I'm a great believer that the best movies, whatever they are, comedies or thrillers, are about engaging the audience's emotion. You need four scenes where, you, where the audience gasps or admires or laughs uh, it just has to be an emotional high for a moment. And I just knew that anybody who could sustain those emotional highs um, would be successful with it. You know, the other thing that's actually quite advantageous about Netflix, when I was doing this as a movie, you've got 100 minutes. You have to have a whole story in 100 minutes. Doing it for Netflix, you not only got more time to deal in more detail and bring in more things, I mean, the, the flashbacks of the mother, it's, it's, she is described as having probably committed suicide in the book. But it was Scott who invented the idea of flash, flashing back to the mother. So you see the child and the mother interacting. And it was an important thing. But once you, once you uh, can establish that relationship, it's a really powerful thing. What I was going to say about Netflix is that one of the pluses that you get is every episode, you look at the episode and you think, okay, let's find a way to give it a lift. Let's give it a, a cliffhanger at the end. You do the same thing if you're doing a two-hour special on, on an American TV show. You know you've got six commercial breaks per hour. And you actually write in little tiny cliffhangers before the commercial break because you need them to come back. Yeah. 15 minutes, I think it is, without a commercial break. But after that, it, it's regular as a metronome. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved inventing those commercial breaks, and Scott did that really well in, in Queen's Gambit. I mean, I love my favorite ending of a scene is when she discovers, that, I don't want to give too much away, but she discovers that you can get uh, by the drug that she likes 
in Mexico without a prescription. And there's a series of scenes, and she goes into the store, and, uh, and the close-up on her, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what happens before that. The payoff line is just her saying, mas, meaning more. And you know that she's just signed a suicide note to herself. She's going to really go for the drugs. Mm. Catherine Morgan has asked, will there be another series? Uh, I've been asked and, and others have been asked and we still don't know. I, For me, I think there's probably very little upside to doing a sequel or a prequel come to that. Uh, I mean, I know Anya's willing. I'm willing. The truth is, I think we're all willing. Actually coming up with the notion to do it, I'm not so sure. Mm. I, these things only come around once or twice. I mean, for anybody who ever knew my movie, uh, Don't Look Now, I've been asked endlessly to do a sequel or a prequel. And the truth is, there's, there's no way I could do that and bring in the best people in the world. And critics wouldn't sit there saying, oh, it wasn't as good as the original. And it probably wouldn't be as good as the original. Mm. So if you're, not, if you're not motivated commercially then, what does motivate you to do the work that you do? Well, to do another, I mean, there's nothing I like more than watching an audience respond favorably. I, some years ago, I made a, a charming little children's movie. After I'd made The Witches, which was charming in a Roald Dahlish way, but I made a movie called Grizzly Falls in Canada. And we screened it to test it in, in, uh, in LA. And at the beginning of the show, the audience was told that they'd get a couple of questions afterwards. And at, and at the end, and I watched, I sat in the screening right at the back watching people's reaction. And it was mainly mothers and their children. And at the end, the guy who did the marketing got up and he said, all right, would you please raise your hands if you would mark the movie good or very good. And every hand in the room went up. And I felt tears running down my face because that's what you do it for. You do yeah. it so that 600 people in a dark room can share the same emotional experience. It's very powerful. And anyway, that's what I do. When people say to me, what's the favorite of the 20 movies you've written? I, the answer is truthfully, always the next one. Because I couldn't do the next one unless I thought it was going to be the best of And adding to that, how does it feel with this harm and effect that's gone around the world of everyone inspired to play chess based on your work? Isn't that lovely? I don't, well, it isn't based on my work. It's based on Scott. Well, the work that you brought to the world, yeah. Yeah, no, I understand. But, but, but people undervalue the contribution that's brought to a show like that by the set designer, by the production designer, by the cameraman, by so many people feed in. I have a one-person campaign as a writer to stop directors taking a possessive apostrophe. It is not Joe Bloggs's The Queen's Gambit, or indeed Scott Frank's. And, and, and Steven Spielberg doesn't seek it. And uh, there are several very eminent directors who don't seek it. because it, But the newspapers, particularly newspapers like The Guardian and magazines like Sight and Sound, they all discuss a film in terms of the director. It, they, they say Joe Bloggs, uh, etc. The great writer who wrote Man, uh, sorry, not Man, um, Man for All Seasons, 
It's a wonderful play. He wrote the screenplay. It was success around the world, but a success of great prestige. Won Oscars and BAFTAs and everything else. And contractually, his title is Fred Zinnemann's Man for All Seasons. Now, that's just bullshit. Mm. I think. And I wish journalists wouldn't be as lazy as to ascribe to the director all the work that goes into a movie. Some directors deserve at least some kind of elevated credit because they are genuinely auteurs. Nick Rogue was an auteur. I made five movies with him. But Nick, Nick's auteurship was actually curiously based on letting the other creatives have their head and then holding them in place. Anyway, who knows? Back to Queen's Gambit. I, yeah. loved, I loved all the other elements that were brought to the show. Mm. Uh, in, in, and I do think that, for instance, the costumes were amazing. I mean, I, by the way, and, and, and some parts of the women's movement have now started to go after it. I discovered the other day an article somebody sent me that were actually anti-feminist. I, how Queen's Gambit can be seen as anti-feminist is beyond <laughs> But I assure you there's a little cadre of people who think so. Oh, you must be used to that in your world, Alan, with critics, that surely that there's always something for them to pick at, is there not? Yeah, of course, easily, yeah, yeah. But I, I, having said that, I, I don't really mind critics because many critics these days are quite, are, are boosters of the movie, or at least they're quietly, uh, they're quietly supportive. I was on various movie business committees with a British critic called Alexander Walker. And I had to go through two meetings with him after I'd read his review of a movie I made with Nick, in which he said of it, this would be a good Radio 4 radio play. <laughs> well, the hell with that. It was good. But I didn't attack him. <laughs> <laughs> so let's now move on to Netflix. Because I can imagine the way you bring movies to the screen has changed from when you were doing it, say, 30 years ago. Um, you know, streaming is obviously now huge. So can you just take us through that journey a bit of how you see it's changed and maybe the upside and the downside? Yeah, I, the downside is that you get small stories stretched over seven, eight, nine, ten episodes. That's the downside. But audiences kind of know that now. And I know a number of people who binge watch, and after episode seven or so, they give up. And, 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 and Netflix will respond to that and make sure that doesn't happen. So that may, may not be a bad thing. For writers, it's a wonderful thing, studios like Netflix and Hulu, because it brings you a whole new set of challenges. It is really, really difficult to make sure that an audience remembers an incident in the first episode mm. that was very important. But they have to remember it in episode six in order for that moment to pay off. Mm. You but it gives you, the main thing it gives you is, is the time to do much more detail and, and much more drama than you used to get in, in 90 or 100 minute movies. I, I think that's a wonderful challenge for dramatists, full stop. Mm. And, of course, we're in a weird area in that you probably haven't launched um, any um, creative before. In a pandemic, that would be my guess. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions. Um, no, and I was and I was in hospital, not feeling very good for myself with COVID, 
when the first night that it was broadcast. Oh, so no. I watched the first two or three episodes, and I'm like, oh, my TV in the hospital didn't work. That's right. So I was watching on somebody else's TV, barely, and falling asleep between... Uh, anyway, I had a bad experience. Mm. And, and you're okay now, are you? I'm better, thank you, yes. And I had my injection, my vaccination today, so That's I can amazing. breathe all over you, and you'll be okay. <laughs> But um, in a way, I mean, obviously your own health aside, uh, you know, contracting COVID, do you think maybe the fact that it it had its premiere while COVID was on was good for it because there's more people at home watching? You know, it never crossed my mind, but I'm sure that must have been the case, yeah. Mm. I mean, what makes it good, what is extraordinary is how quickly it seemed to pick up audiences. I mean, really quickly. And that's not people watching or binge watching the whole thing and telling their friends. So there was something in the trailers which were awfully well done. I mean, that's the other thing that you've got to give Netflix credit for. Their, their, their PR and their trailers and their teasers are really, really good. And I think that audiences sensed from those little bits that they're exposed to before the show opens, I think audiences spotted something that they knew they would enjoy. It's as simple as that. I think yeah. also social media, because... Um, I see things come up on Netflix all the time, Alan, and um, occasionally if it says top 10 or it's very related to me, I might try it. But I'll usually go on if, you know, five or six of people in my social media network have all said, look, this is really good. You've got to watch it because I don't want to invest a load of time and watch something that, you know, because no. when you're in, you're in and then you don't want to I kind agree. of uh, invest a load of time. So do you think social media has really helped get the word out there? I do, actually. I think now, I mean, especially, I mean, Queen's Gambit is almost a reference point now in various other worlds than chess. Uh, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the notions I loved, which is in the book and therefore and in the, in the movies, uh, is her imagining chessboards on the ceiling and playing mm. games in her mind on the ceiling. And apparently somebody at, at Grand Central Station put an entire chessboard with pieces on the ceiling upside down. Oh, wow. <laughs> that shows the success of Queen's Gambit, because unless you know what that's related to, why would you do that? Mm. I love that idea. I must say. But I think its ongoing success, success is to do with people who have watched all the episodes saying to their friends, this is really a good, a good watch. Yeah. I'm sure some people don't like it. I haven't heard people not liking it. Me neither. Yeah. No. It's, it's curious because we assumed it would be quite a specialist audience. Mm. Anyway. Are you allowed to tell us what you're working on now or next? Not well. I mean, what I'm mainly working on next. Uh, I'm I'm doing a, 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 a screenplay for a, a video game. Oh, how they're going to use my screenplay? I have no idea, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> uh, but I'm actually my commitments at the minute are. Two big musicals, which we're workshopping currently, uh, one of which is uh, three big musicals, sorry, one of which is based on a story by J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. In fact, it's the play he wrote after Peter Pan about a very posh family and their servants, a butler called Crichton and a maid called Tweeting. And the family and the servants are shipwrecked on a desert island. And during the two years they're on the desert island, the social order changes. And the butler and the maid become the people who can do things. And the upper class twits uh, 
the first meeting. So when they return to the manor house, social upheaval is guaranteed. Anyway, that's a comedy. Uh, we're in the midst of casting it. I'm doing a biography, which I can't tell you about, and I'm doing a movie, a, a stage musical about the Second World War. It's a terrific story. Uh, and it's really written uh, partly because it's only the music of the Second World War. You, you won't believe how brilliant the music was of songs that were popular between 39 and 45. I mean, many of which certainly your parents will know, your grandparents will know anyway, but, but I mean, there were just so many great songs and great melodies and great lyrics and add in with extensive bombing and other disasters that happened to London. I really wanted younger people to know how, how incredibly courageous and foolish Britain was to go into that war with no hope. Mm. It really needs to be appreciated that we did something out of sheer um, about the sense of rightness of it. That never happened. It wouldn't occur to Donald Trump to happen, to do something out of a, a moral imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it needs to be recognized. Anyway, so I thought, well, I can put that into a show that has jokes and comedy and costumes and fun and big explosions. I'm, one of the directions says the biggest explosion ever heard in the theater. I don't wow. know how to <laughs> Anyway, so that's my musicals. And I'm doing a couple of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on another, uh, I can't say it's for Netflix yet because I haven't sold it to anybody, but I'm working on a, another series uh, uh, set, uh, in, anyway, I'm, another series. Ah, busy. Good. <laughs> Do you know, I wrote a movie when I was making a film called Castaway. Uh, I came across an Australian manuscript and it was called The Coconut Book. And it was just a magic piece of writing. And I adapted it and I showed it to my then director who said, I'll shoot it. And we were shooting Castaway in the, uh, in the Seychelles. So we could go straight on and do this book. And for one reason or another, we never made it. Never got the finance together. 12 years later, Steven Spielberg made a movie called Castaway, which is scene for scene the movie that I adapted from that Australian book, except he didn't work for FedEx. And, you know, people say, oh, yeah, he must have lifted it. I don't think so. Just good ideas sometimes have continuing parallels, especially if the premise is good. And the premise of this one was basically one guy stranded on an island. Now, there's only so many dramatic lines you can follow with that situation. Mm. There we are. Excellent. I'm looking forward to somebody else stealing a movie from me so that I can, <laughs> so that I can sue the next time. <laughs> so on, on the note of you bringing words like steal and sue and sell, um, you know, just a little bit about the sort of the business and the commercial side of um, your world of film, because I, I have a lot of entrepreneurs who follow me. Are you interested in the business and the commercial side? Is it fair to say that, you know, you, you, you sell and you market and that is part of your world or are you just purely into the creative and artistic side? I, I don't think, well, I don't think you'd be very good if you were only into the commercial and artistic side. Because at the end of the day, what we do is always about finding an audience and then pleasing that audience. Ah, you're back. 
We thought we'd lost you, Alan. I thought I'd lost you too. But <laughs> I, I'm going to have to lose you in a few minutes anyway, actually. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do, Alan. We'll go into a quick fire round so that because oh. I want to respect your time. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, questions left, plus the one that we got interrupted there, and we'll do them in the next five minutes. Um, so you can be done by that time. So, yeah, I was just asking you about the um, the business and the commercial versus the creative. No, my, my, my answer to that is that, no, you can't only be interested in the deal. Um, of course there are deals, and, and but at the end of the day, if you're not focused on the project and what the values of the project are, you're not going to have any deal to de do with. I say to when I give um, talks to aspiring writers and media schools and those kind of bodies, the truth is, I believe, and I may be wrong and it may be too optimistic, I believe that if you have written or got something really good, somebody will find it. It doesn't matter whether you have an agent or what. You know, I started out, and I'm not saying this happens a lot, but I started out in the, in the 70s, wrote a spec script, sold it for £2,000, which was a lot of money for me to make at that time. The guy who bought it sold it on for £12,000. I'm an idiot. I, I thought, gee, if it was worth £12,000 to him, why did he only give me two? And then the guy who paid £12,000 for it sold it on for £60,000. I think dollars, actually. Anyway, the long and the short was once you can see you have a value, you learn how to handle that value. But yeah. you have an agent who advises you on this and how to, how to deal with it. So you have to be slightly wise and canny about money. Mm. But at the end of the day, please concentrate only on what the project is that you're doing. Mm. Right, so we have four minutes to do seven, seven questions. So um, what's the best advice you can ever remember receiving, Alan? I, I, I'm not sure that I was actually given this advice, but I discovered it, so I'm passing it on. If, you, if you're a writer and you have blank pages in front of you and you don't know how to write a screenplay, go buy or download the 12 favorite movies you've seen Scripts, not the movies, the scripts. They're always available, especially the good ones. And read them. And once you've read six of them, eight of them, you are a screenwriter. Great. What's the worst <laughs> advice you can ever remember receiving? <laughs> the worst advice is always say yes to it. <laughs> Do you have a most embarrassing moment in your career, Alan? I mean, just the usual. I mean, I've, uh, I've dried during a lecture. I was trying to improvise and thought, what the F am I supposed to say next? I can't remember. Like this. <laughs> Do you have a biggest regret? Yeah, I think I spent too long in Hollywood. I, I, I spent 30 years there, and, and it is such – I mean, I loved it. I love California. I love the life, the lifestyle. One of my children is still living there. Uh, it's such a transactional society. You cannot avoid being involved in in being involved in who do you know or do you know so and so? Or can I get to be a pal of so? -and -so? It's just. And and my a friend of mine said to me the other day. He said, "Have you come across ageism?" And I said, "No, I haven't." 
He said, well, wait a minute. 20 years ago, when you were working in Hollywood, if you needed a meeting with a studio head, did you get it? I said, yes, always. He said, he said, when was the last time you got a meeting with a studio head? Oh, my God, I have had ages. Because when I talk to a studio head, and my film references are movies that he wasn't born when I was admiring them. And they are uncomfortable with that, so I avoid it. I have to say, Netflix were immaculate. They looked after us all really, really well. And when I was recently ill with COVID, I had a huge bunch of flowers from somebody I've never met in my life who happens to be the biggest of the big bosses at Netflix. Wow. How nice is that? I mean, that, you know, that's a company that's looking out for its employees. Mm. Is there one thing that's wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, and it's in America and it's the American politics, which has become so divisive now that if it continues on the path it's on, there will be civil war in America. Uh, and the extraordinary thing is it's only if somebody like you or I go there and go to Minnesota or go and sit in Oklahoma and talk to people who have a different political view to yours and who think that by wanting to give them a national health service, we're actually introducing communism. And they really sincerely believe that. They are the only developed nation that doesn't have a national health system. And that's partly because half that nation, or whatever the proportion is, really, really believe that you're taking them down the path to totalitarianism. And we just got a glimpse of it yesterday. Mm. Mm. Is there one person on the planet that you would love to see an interview like this with? I think I'd have to think about that and send you a note. If you can guarantee to deliver him or her. I, you can never guarantee, can you, Alan? Don't pat, I won't go, but I'll do my very best. <laughs> I don't want to drop names, but I had such a great pleasure this afternoon. 30 years ago, more, 35 years ago, I became quite close friends with a gentleman who you know as Cat Stevens. And I wrote a children's book for him to go along with an album that he, his last album was Cat Stevens. And uh, <coughs> I ran into him in the airport. Ah. And I said, whatever happened to that book? You never got it published? Uh, anyway, the long and the short of my tale is that today on a Zoom call with him and his grown-up sons who were crawling on the floor the last time I saw them. Uh, we talked about this book and what we're going to do with it. And I'm looking forward to that project more than any other at the moment. And that will make my life happy for the next few weeks. Ah, oh, excellent. And then finally, um, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. That word disruptive, what does yes. that mean to you? Uh, it means I very nearly didn't agree to do it because I thought they're going to screw me over. And oh, that's interesting. Hopefully you don't feel I have screwed you over no, now. No, 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 not at all. But you have the you have the capable you can if you wanted. I mean you could if you had wanted. And yeah. so I hesitated and then somebody knew you and said no. no. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad because I that's totally not what I'd want to do. I want to, you know, have a nice engaging conversation and yeah. That's great. yeah. All right, interesting. It presumably keeps you busy researching the people you're talking to. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a life. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, one thing I would just love to say as we finish, Alan, is um, 
I really get this sense that you really enjoy your life and you're really passionate about what you do. And that mm -hmm. I really just enjoy talking to people like you like that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel seven foot tall when I finish this and I'm going to go and tell my wife what a, a great chat we've had. And that's what I want to get across on the show, people's passions and their lessons. And I've never tried to trip up anyone. Although this, you might find this interesting, Alan. We did have Pablo Escobar's son, who it probably turns out it wasn't his son. And I, he sort of tied himself into some knots on my show and it looked like he sort of exposed himself. That was a bit weird. But it's only happened, only happened once in 600 times. So <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah I, look, if my next project is as successful as the last one, let's do this again. I'd love to. And where can we... Oh. Yeah, oh, I'd love to do this again. I think we can talk for a long time. Um, but I know you have to go. So where can we follow you? Obviously, everyone can see The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. If you've not watched it, you must go watch it. If you've been put off by the chess angle, please just, you know, get over that because it's brilliant. But where, you know, do you, do you are you on any social media? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm on a couple only to follow what my grown-up children are doing. Mm. And I keep a low profile. Uh, if I can. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll do our best to get as many people watching The Queen's Gambit as possible because I loved okay. it. And I'm just going to finish by saying I did have an equal favourite. And it was uh, – did you watch Normal I, People? Do I get to guess it? Oh, was sorry. It, did I it say normal it? People? Yeah. You said Normal People. Yeah. Did you okay, watch no, it? I, you know, I didn't watch it. My wife absolutely adored it. Yeah. It's, it's I lovely. I, I think you'd love it. Yeah. I mean, I'm still at that stage. I tend to watch – these kind of shows late at night on my iPad. And I am so often I, I thought, I, I really want to sleep, but I want to watch that. <laughs> and I end up watching Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> That's your go-to. <laughs> I mean, it's not my go-to really, but it helps me sleep. <laughs> right. Always go to sleep with a laugh. That's my advice. Yes. Yes. Shit's Creek. Did you ever watch that? I like that. That's fine. Oh, That's great. Yeah, really brilliant. Yeah, and they, they came out at the top as well. They didn't overdo it. It was really good. That's true. Mm. Alan, thank you very much. I know you have to go. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank so, you. Everyone, um, we've been here with Alan Scott um, of, of the Queen's Gambit. He's been very humble to give credit to a lot of the team. You know, of course, the, the director, you know, the people who do and, the set. And the writer. And co-creator, which is what my billing is. Actually, right. me, co-writer. Yes, and you know, Scott did all the heavy lifting. Mm. By that time, I was just smiling at it. <laughs> Thanks, then, Alan. Bye-bye. Right,